Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Joy Gorman-Weddles. Joy is a partner and producer at Anonymous Content, focused on social impact content for women and youth. She's also the executive producer of the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why, the Apple Plus series Home Before Dark, and the feature films Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, and The Meddler, among many other projects. Joy, we're very excited to have you. How are you doing right now? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. My first question is always, where are you in the world? I have a good feeling that you're based somewhere in Southern California. Am I right? Yes, I luckily moved into a new house right before the pandemic. Even after eight months, I'm not really sick of being here. I'm in Larchmont Village. My child is downstairs in the family room with our puppy and two kittens, and she's being homeschooled. Oh, no, it's Veterans Day today. So she is not in school. She's going on a little jaunt with her dad this afternoon. Yeah, I'm just here in Hancock Park. As a producer, obviously, we've had a very strange, bizarre, unprecedented year, 2020. From a production standpoint, can you walk us through from your experience how things have been affected? And then also, are things moving in a better direction now? Well, you know, it took many months of, you know, reviewing the white papers and the studios and networks making deals with the unions to figure out a protocol. We restarted season two of Home Before Dark on September 14th, and we were originally going to start mid-August, end of August. So we were one of the first productions up in Vancouver, and I cannot tell you how relatively smoothly it has gone considering what we expected. And I really give all of that credit to my line producer and to our COVID protocol experts on the ground. We have a doctor named Dr. Shaw and four nurses that, you know, administer the testing three times a week. Everything's broken up into zones. So the protocols have been, you know, now that we know what they are, we've all been following them pretty clearly. And everybody's just so darn happy to be back at work that everybody's like, give me a test. I'll take it. You know, nobody's complaining because they just want to be on set and working. So we feel really lucky there. But, you know, I don't envy my friends or like big physical production and labor executives at studios because those six months that people were like, what am I going to do? I'm trapped in my house. I can't make a show. You know, those physical production executives were 24-7 trying to figure out a way to get back to work with the unions and health officials, and they've done an incredible job figuring that out for us all. And what about the writers out there listening who may be struggling during this time with either writer's block or maybe they're hearing things like, it's harder right now to get your foot in the door. What would you say to those writers out there who are listening? Well, you know, I would say that 
Usually our best storytelling comes out of times of trauma. And, you know, even the best comedy of all time comes from a place of darkness. So if we can try to be patient and find joy in the work, knowing that when this is over, there will be a script in your hand and there will be people ready to read it and pay for it or read it and hire you. You know, there is obviously there are fewer productions going on right now, but I believe there is a lot of fodder for great stories and for deeply emotional and honest storytelling and, and authentic storytelling. And that as long as you're cranking every day and you've got those pages, when the economy is getting a little bit better, people are going to want to buy that script or hire you for that writer's room. And I will say, you know, we had a Zoom room that went up in April on a Netflix show that I'm producing called Overlooked. And most of the room, like half of the room are playwrights and first time TV writers. So there's a lot of opportunity coming. And I just think if what you really love is writing, your story will eventually be heard, you know, is what I have to hope. Love that. Before we get into your process of being a producer, I would love to hear your origin story. So can you tell us, did you always want to be a producer? And how did you get to this point? Because obviously you're very accomplished. It all started in Yonkers, New York, where I was a little girl whose mommy taught me to love theater and made me read the New York Times art and leisure section and circle the <laughs> Ninas and the Hirschfelds of the New York Times and listen to Sondheim and Burt Bacharach and watch Woody Allen movies back when that was a thing we were all supposed to do. And so, you know, I was a bridge and tunnel kid who went into New York City all the time. And even when we didn't have money, my mom always figured out a way to, you know, take me to the Lincoln Center Library and check out soundtracks and musicals and watch old movies. And so I loved musicals. I loved storytelling. I loved the arts. But, you know, it was definitely a struggle to figure out a way to actually make that a lifestyle if you didn't have anything to fall back on. And I commuted to Barnard College of Columbia University, lived at home with my mom, and I saw a show there called The Varsity Show, which was a 100-year tradition at the time. Now it's 120 years like a Harvard Lampoon type musical. And I saw this show and it was written by a guy named Brian Yorkie and a guy named Tom Kitt. And I fell in love with this show and wanted to be a part of it, ended up being in it, producing it. And then this guy, Brian Yorkie and I started meeting at coffee shops and working on scripts together. And, you know, many, many, many years later, he is the creator of 13 Reasons Why. So there was a long road in between that. But I tell that version of the story because at 19, when I didn't know who I was or what I wanted to be, like deep in my gut, I had the eye to find a collaborator for life, you know? And I really try to go back to that moment when I'm like getting lost in the politics and the craziness of Hollywood and remember like, you know, what makes you love storytelling? What makes you love a writer's voice? What makes you the person that can be their partner and fight for their voice, you know? 
But the story in between that is started at Miramax as an assistant in New York in the crazy heydays of Harvey's, you know, Shakespeare in Love, Goodwill Hunting, you know, that was right after college for me. Moved to LA, worked for a producer named Bob Simons, who now owns SDX Studio. I was a development executive for him, then became a manager working out of my house because of a family tragedy that stopped my ability to be a development executive at a studio level. I needed to take a little bit of a break and I just started to work on scripts with writers that I loved, including Brian Yorkie and Dana Fox. And then Steve Golan invited me to join Anonymous Content as a young lit manager. And I said, well, hey, I'm really, really want to be a producer. And so I'm going to come and work for you because you're a real producer and I know you'll teach me how to be a producer. And he was like, it's a deal. And I've been there ever since. But I managed and produced at the same time for 10 years. And for me, after having my daughter and realizing, you know, how little time we have in a day to make and do the things that we want to do, I felt like it was important to make a choice for me personally. And I went to Steve and said, I don't want to be a manager anymore. I want to produce full time. And is that something that you'd be willing to support? And that was about six years ago. And it was at the premiere of the Medler at Toronto Film Festival, where Lorraine Scafaria and I were about to get up on stage and do a Q&A that Netflix called and ordered 13 Reasons Why. So six months after I told Steve I'm not managing clients anymore, I had you know a movie sell and a series get picked up and that plan ended up working out okay. But it was a big risk and it was really scary to make that leap and make that decision. Love that. As far as themes for our episodes, we usually have different themes. In this case, I would love to talk to you about producing 101, so to speak. My first question, starting from a high level, for those who may or may not know, can you just walk us through, by definition, what a producer does? You know, it's such an interesting question to answer because, I mean, I had that question during so much of my trajectory, you know, to becoming a producer because... There are so many different potential ways that someone gets that credit of producer or executive producer. Sometimes you've just found a book and handed it to somebody and you get yourself a producer credit. Or sometimes you've packaged something and then sold it and you really barely watch cuts or read scripts, but you're an executive producer. And there's a lot of folks who build a really successful business doing it that way. But the kind of producer that Steve Golan was, and I felt taught me to be, and what I strive to be every day, is a true partner to the creative, visionary, and voice of the piece. So whether it's my showrunner or a first-time director like Lorene Scafaria on Seeking a Friend and The Meddler, you know, my job is, A, Developing the material and making it undeniably fantastic. B, helping to package so you can get the financing for that material. Then once you've got that financing, whether it's your studio or your network, being able to navigate the development process, the notes process, the, you know, keep the creative on track 
and the politics of it all on track. And then once you're on set and you're really making something, it's super important to be able to separate your showrunner or your writer-director from the minutia of production while still delivering them the thing that they need to tell the story right. So if what they need is a plane that looks real, but you're on an $8 million movie and your line producer is giving you a little tiny chug-chug plane that looks terrible, you got to be willing to fight for a bigger plane and ask the network or the, <laughs> or the studio to give you money for a better plane. Or you got to get your writer to cut a page to pay for the plane, right? So it's really this delicate balance between understanding the money, understanding the budget, and then it's our job to protect that. But that it's most important that you're protecting the vision of the director, the showrunner, the writing team, whoever's initial vision it is. And often, you know, like with Home Before Dark, Dana and Dara and I came up with that vision together, you know, and so I was very, very involved in protecting the vision, but also protecting the budget at the same time, you know, so it really varies is the answer. And I think that you find in every experience, you find which strengths are going to service the project most. Like I'm on a project called Overlooked at Netflix with brilliant showrunner named Lauren Morelli, brilliant producers, Liza Chasen, and the Obama's Higher Ground Productions is run by Tonya Davis and Priya Swaminathan. And these women, who are my non-writing EP partners, we all have different strengths, you know? And so it's just a really exciting collaboration because I can always call one of them and be like, you're better at explaining this thing than I am. Would you take a shot at this conversation? And they could say, what do you think about how to make this deal? You know, and so it's fun. You know, the thing is being a producer is so much fun. It's so hard, but it's so much fun because sometimes you just never know what your real strength and gift to a project and a show is going to be. And sometimes it's super creative and sometimes it's something, you know, about schedule and budget that no one else ever thought of. I would love to break the role of producer down into steps, get a bit more granular, perhaps starting with an idea where you find your ideas and how you decide to move forward with something. When we've interviewed managers before, they've said that sometimes they'll work with a client. You know, maybe they have an idea and they ask the client, the writer, to write that idea with them or the other way around. So for you as a producer and not a manager, how does that differ? How do you find the projects that you want to work on? And at what point in the process do you hop on board? So it varies. But for me, most of the time, I'm obsessed with an idea or a message that I want to amplify. And then I find a story that represents that. But an example, let's use Home Before Dark as sort of a case study, if you will, right? So I was at the Medler premiere at Tribeca Film Festival, and they had something called the Tribeca Disruptive Innovation Awards. And I was with a collaborator on another project who was winning one of these awards. And a little girl who's nine years old gets up and receives an award for writing a newspaper. She's nine scooping a murder ahead of her local newspapers and then 
was taken down on the internet and bullied and made a video that went viral telling people that, you know, they could say whatever they want, but she's going to defend the truth. Nine years old. And I turned to her parents who were sitting in front of me and I said, oh my God, I have a four-year-old daughter. Like, I want her to grow up to be like your daughter. Can I make a TV show about her? (laughs) And that was how it started, you know? And the first person I thought of for that particular idea was Dana Fox. Dana Fox and I have been friends since I moved to LA. She was formerly my client. I was the first person to read her first screenplay. We did a hundred drafts of scripts as manager client early in our careers in our twenties and sold her first script together. So we had a really sweet history and a real bond. And I said, I think I found the TV show for us. And she's like, a nine-year-old girl. Oh my God, I love this. But like, how do we make a sophisticated, elegant, grown-up story about a little kid who's going to take us seriously? And it took a while of back and forth, like, what could the show be? And she was like, I've been obsessed with these mystery podcasts, real crime and murder. And what if we put a little kid in the center of a story like this? And I'm like, I don't know. That's scary. You know, what's the tone going to be like? And then we go, oh, it's Amblin or it's, it's Stand By Me. And we start figuring out what we think that story can be. Then in the meantime, Dana's writing Cruella DeVille for Disney and is a very highly in demand screenwriter for film. And to get her to commit to taking a chance on a TV show that may or may not ever get sold is hard, right? So she says, why don't we find a partner who can write this with me so that I'm not holding you up because I know you're obsessed with the story. And in the meantime, Paramount and Steve Golan, Anonymous was just becoming a studio at the time. So Amy Powell at Paramount and Steve Golan buy me the life rights. They said, it's okay that you don't have a writer yet. We trust that you'll find them. And I said, well, I'm trying to talk Dana Fox into this. And in the meantime, I have a friend named Dara Resnick who had recently broken up with her writing partner and was a mom in my daughter's preschool and our daughters were good friends. And I said, hey, Dana Fox wants a partner on this project. We feel like we know what it is. And she comes from the crime network, crime procedural world. Dana comes from a more character-driven, comedic world. And I decided to pair them. And the three of us kind of over a year and a half mapped out what the story should be. And, you know, we lost Dara for a while because she went and worked on a different show on Daredevil. And then we brought in John Chu, who fell in love with it and, you know, helped us polish it up. And we all went out and sold it together and got a series order. But so that's a case study of like how I had an idea. I saw someone's life and wanted to bring that life to television and fictionalize it. And I assembled a team that I felt could do that. And a big part of my job through that whole, now it's four years later, four and a half years later, you know, a big part of my job was sort of being the glue between all of these different folks 
between Hildy and her dad and, you know, the writers and between the two writers that were co-creating it, between the director and the showrunners, you know, so, you know, hopefully that's kind of an example of what a producer does from inception, you know, when you're really in something from the beginning. You know, there's also, once you make a name for yourself as a producer, there's sometimes a go show that just doesn't have a producer who knows how to produce on it. And a studio calls you and says, I need Liza Chasen to mind the store on this show because I've got some cool people who put a show together, but they're not people who can actually make sure the showrunner has a real producing partner to make the show. That, unluckily, has not happened to me yet. No one has handed me a show. But I hope soon somebody will hand me a show. (laughs) It hasn't happened to me yet. Still only (laughs) six years into my producing career. But if anybody's listening, hand me a show. (laughs) I always do it the hard way. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. In your bio earlier, I mentioned that you were focused on social impact content for women and youth. So can you tell us about the activism side of storytelling and what that means to you? Yeah, you know, I think it was a combo of, like I said earlier, being a mom and realizing that every minute away from your child is so painful and hard (laughs) that you have to really love what you're doing as your livelihood. For me, I had to feel like there was a real purpose to what I was doing. And I was so sick of like fighting with agents and not having dudes call me back because I wasn't in their golf club. You know what I mean? And it was just like, I've got to focus on what matters to me and what I think is going to matter in the world to my child. And In that moment, I just started to like laser focus on the projects I wanted to work on and the message that I wanted to send. And I think that one of the things that just came organically 
to that intention was to find organizations that were working in the space. So the minute that Brian started writing 13 Reasons Why, I said, I'm going to call us some psychiatrists who work with suicidal teenagers. I'm going to reach out to It's On Us and figure out, you know, who can be an expert in terms of, you know, sexual assault. And I really wanted to make sure that in the storytelling, we were being truly thoughtful and authentic and drawing from life experience and getting expert points of view in order to like, you know, filter that expert point of view into what Brian and the writers and Tom McCarthy would ultimately interpret into the show, but also have those folks aligned with us so that when we're marketing the show, we can build resources and a network for kids to find the help that there wasn't a clear path to before. So it was like the whole point of 13 Reasons Why The whole reason that we wanted to make this show is to send the message, you are not alone. There are millions of kids all over the world who feel depressed, who have been bullied, who have been raped, who have suicidal ideation. It is okay to not be okay, right? So we could send that message, but then we wanted to also provide the steps that once you heard that message, the steps that you can take. You can text crisis text line. You know what I mean? Like, so we wanted to provide a community for our audience after the experience of provocative entertainment that creates a conversation. We wanted to help provide action after that conversation. And like with Home Before Dark, we're talking about a journalism scholarship, for instance. You know, like we want to have that CSI effect that made a lot of, you know, young women become forensic scientists. We want to have that effect on truth in journalism. We want kids to believe in the integrity of journalism and want to be journalists. And so we, along with Apple, are figuring out ways to fold that into our marketing campaign and make sure that we're putting out that messaging that you too can be a vigilante for truth. It could be a journalist and could be a child that is a change maker, you know? Love that. You produce both films and TV. Can you walk us through what the difference in the producing side of things is for those? What are the key differences? You know, for me in particular, because what draws me to material is voice and character, like I'm probably not going to, even the most incredible comic book is going to land on my desk. I'm going to be like, I don't really feel like reading that tonight, but (laughs) do you know what I mean? And so what I've always been drawn to and where I started is that sort of super character-driven indie film, deeply emotional, authentic, you know, not plot-driven, not genre-driven, but very character-driven pieces, right? And because of that, I made three indie movies, two with, you know, one of my favorite filmmakers in the world, Lorene Scafaria, who's like a sister to me, one of which was autobiographical for her. So it was 
crucial that we were very, very true to the story because it was her story about her mother. But what I learned is that when you love that kind of stuff, you don't get big budgets for it. You know, the meddler we made for $3.25 million. People can't believe us sometimes because it looks really great and it looks a lot more expensive. But what television and especially like the anonymous content version of television, which was, you know, Steve Golan made indie films, broke filmmakers like Michelle Gondry and Eternal Sunshine, Spike Jones with being John Malkovich, you know, that television suddenly gave you the budget and the outlet for these character-driven stories. And I didn't need a superhero to get the resources to tell a story, right? And so that's what really drew me to television is that the writer's voice and the character's voice is what you're tuning in to every episode. And of course, you need that press play moment. You need that mystery or you need that cliffhanger that gets people to keep watching that makes it addictive to a streamer, etc. But I had made three films that were either critically acclaimed or did the festival circuit and were somewhat beloved, but had very little audience. And that was heartbreaking because it's six years of your life sometimes 10 years of your life sometimes to get, I mean, it was 10 years for Brian Yorkie and Tom Kitt to get next to normal to Broadway that we had worked 12 years actually, you know, and I had worked on so many projects that I worked on for years that were only seen by a very small amount of people. But television gave me the same artistic fulfillment as making a beautiful movie with Loreen, like The Meddler or Seeking a Friend, but with this guarantee that people might actually see it because it was going to be dropped in 190 countries all at once. And that felt just so magical, you know, to know that for the same amount of work, the work was actually going to be like, there was kind of a guarantee that it was going to be seen. And I think that obviously we're still in the midst of the, change in what movies means and what theatrical movies are going to mean post-COVID and what it's going to take to get people back into theaters. And so now I feel like streaming movies are starting to get us back into the movie business in a way where more people can watch them. But, you know, I lean towards television because I know that I don't have to let go of our characters after two hours and I can live with them maybe for three years, you know? So that's another reason why I love TV is just like not having to say goodbye to somebody after two hours. I get very attached to our characters when I love something. (laughs) Love that. My next question is about your slate. Can you tell us what you're working on now? I know before the podcast, you had mentioned really exciting docuseries that's coming. And also just in general, what's next for you in your career? Oh, I'm trying to figure the what's next part myself, Cord, but um, (laughs) maybe after today we'll have a revelation. You know, I feel so grateful to be working on my first docuseries. It's really hard when you don't have a script that you've been developing and you're trying to track history, but Eyes on the Prize was something that 
really spoke to me as a kid. It's this landmark documentary series that was on PBS in the 80s. And when I was growing up in Yonkers, there was a really like a, you know, made national news, a desegregation case in Yonkers that, you know, was really affected me as a kid. And I was the first white girl on my bus. And I didn't understand, you know, what was happening in my city or my country and why people were fighting about me going to a school in my own neighborhood. And I watched Eyes on the Prize and it completely shaped me in terms of understanding the civil rights movement, understanding like my place in the world as a white girl, like, and how I couldn't believe that these horrible things were happening to to black people in America for all of these years. And it was only 20 years before I was watching it. And Eyes on the Prize was this piece of content that changed my life and made me want to like made me understand the power of filmmaking to create empathy and to evoke feeling and change in people. And so about eight years ago, I reached out to the original rights holders of Eyes on the Prize and I said, I want Eyes on the Prize to change the lives of kids across America like it did for me in 1987, you know? And Judy Hampton entrusted me with the rights. And for years, I was like, it's such a cross to bear or a burden to bear. Like you're like, if I don't, if I don't do this right, If I fail, I don't know what I'll do. Like I've spent many nights staring at the ceiling going, why hasn't this been made yet? And the answer came about nine, 10 months ago when my colleagues and I sat down with Patrice Cullors in January, February, and she said, Eyes on the Prize is what made me a community organizer. I would not have been the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Had I not seen Eyes on the Prize as a kid, and she offered to partner with us to executive produce sort of a reboot of Eyes on the Prize to bring the brand back, tell the stories that are missing since Henry Hampton, who created the original, passed away in 1998. And so we have assembled this unbelievable collective of activists and filmmakers to build a storytelling ecosystem that's going to bring back this landmark civil rights documentary series that completely changed our lives as kids and bring it back to a new audience. And my great hope is that educators and parents across the aisles will watch this together and, you know, it will transcend the noise of social media and be another opportunity to share the truth with people. And so, you know, we've just started, we've got camera crews out there and we've just started capturing a lot of what's been going on with the election and voter suppression. And it's a really exciting and humbling experience to be a part of it. But that's going to be a six-part series on HBO and an event special on HBO Max in summer of 2021. So that's one of my most priority projects right now. Love that. I would love to, if possible, ask a couple bonus questions. The first one being, 
if you could take any writer to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why? Oh my God, that's so funny. Would it be a writer that I know? Or No, it could be anyone, living or dead. Oh my God, I really have to think about this because I hate fast food restaurants. I mean, I only like in and out <laughs> That's why we ask the question. It always throws people for a loop. I just don't think I would take any of my favorite writers to a fast food restaurant. I would like, <laughs> I'm Italian. I would cook them like a big, beautiful meal. Like That's an acceptable answer. Hot sauce, and I'd invite them to my house. I don't think I would ever take them to, <laughs> That's totally to a fast acceptable. food restaurant. I honestly think I would love to meet like IAL Diamond or like some really old movie writer from pre-Writer's Guild. I'd love to meet one of these like 1940s film writers or like Patty Shayevsky or, you know, somebody like that. I really want to live in the 40s and 50s. So I just want to make a Gene Kelly movie, like a big musical with Gene Kelly. Like That's what I want to be doing. Love that. Second to last question. If you could have produced any film or TV show in the history of cinema, what would you choose? I would say, and I'm friends with a lot of the girls who make this show, so I honestly think Insecure is one of the greatest shows to grace television. I think Issa and Denise Davis and Melina Mitsukas, who directed the pilot, these are just, these women are voices of a generation. I think that show has just broken so many barriers, and Issa, as a voice of the culture, has broken so many barriers. The last question, if you had to choose one piece of advice from your entire career that you could pass along to the writers listening, what's the one thing you would say? I would say, of course, everybody tells you to write what you know, but you have to balance that with immersing yourself in other people's experiences besides your own so that you can write what they know through the filter of what you know. So. I find that some of the most personal work can be devastatingly beautiful. And then some of it can feel self-congratulatory and gratuitous and all about one person's experience. And so radical empathy is what Brian Yorkie always, you know, pointed toward what drove him and the writers to come up with stories on 13 Reasons Why. Immerse yourself in the lives of other people that you want to learn more from and try to put yourself in other people's shoes all the time so that you can write every character with purity and authenticity and passion and love the way that you can write from your own experience. Love that. The very last question, did you have fun with us today talking? I know it you know, went by very quick and it always feels like we only scratch you know, the tip of the iceberg, but did you have fun? It's so much fun. You know, I was saying to one of my colleagues this morning, or maybe it was my therapist, who knows the difference at this point. (laughs) But I was saying that, you know, our business is so competitive and it's such a grind and it's so, you know, you get into the weeds so easily and everything's so urgent that it really is rewarding to make the time to have these conversations. Yesterday, I did a panel for my college for Barnard College. And it really is so rewarding to get to reflect and share with you guys some of the experiences that I've had because 
Sometimes you feel so powerless in any given work day. You forget the wisdom that you actually have to impart to other folks who are feeling the same way. And so I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And I really thank you for thinking of me. And I really did have fun. Thank you, Joy. I know you've got the series on HBO coming up in 2021. Did you want to plug anything else? Well, Home Before Dark season two is coming out in the spring. And this show is so close to my heart. And I love it so much. And, you know, it was dropped with very little ability for a marketing campaign because it was two weeks into COVID. It came out on April 3rd. And so even though it's done really well on Apple, I feel like a lot of people don't know about it because we didn't have an outdoor campaign. We had like one of the first weird, awkward Zoom press junkets, you know, and I'd really love for people to get on Apple Plus and watch Home Before Dark. Bring your kids that are 10 and older, nieces, nephews, dads, cousins, uncles. It's something for the whole family. And I'm so proud of it. And I want everybody to watch all 10 hours of Home Before Dark because six months from now, you got to be ready for season two. Love that. If you're listening, check it out. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. And again, it really means a lot to us for you to share your wisdom. So thanks so much again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.